The Behavioral Corner is produced in cooperation with Retreat Behavioral Health, where healing happens. Hi and welcome, I'm Steve Martorano and this is The Behavioral Corner. You're invited to hang with us as we discuss the ways we live today, the choices we make, the things we do, and how they affect our health and well-being. So you're on the corner, the behavioral corner. Please, hang around a while. Hi, everybody. Welcome again. It's the behavioral corner. Welcome. I'm Steve Martorano, the uh, resident uh, keeper of the corner. What we do here is the conceit is we're hanging out and we run into interesting people. We hope you find that to be true. Uh, we certainly do. And uh, what we do is talk about everything. I like to talk about this podcast as a podcast about everything since our behavioral health is affected by everything. It's made possible by our underwriting partners, Retreat Behavioral Health. Um, in any event, what we try to do is shed a little light on something that people hear a lot about, but maybe really don't understand what's going on. I mean, we are in a, a couple of crises here in this country, certainly substance abuse and uh, overdose deaths as a result is a crisis proportion. And so is a co-occurring mental health situation. We're in an all-time high for problems in that area as well. In the 10 years we've done this program, uh, in my limited experience, I have seen things change with regard to treating all these problems. The, the changes are uh, incremental. And our guest today will tell you that they're not nearly uh, sufficient enough. Uh, Barry Lessing is a, a licensed psychologist, certified advanced alcohol and drug counselor. He works with young people and their families. This is a family disease, people who've been impacted by uh, substance abuse disorders and their related mental health issues. He has over 40 years in the field as a clinician, administrator, educator, researcher, and public health advocate. And he's here to talk about the changes he has seen and the shift in his uh, approach to those problems. Barry Lessing, thanks for joining us on The Corner. Thank you, Steve. It's great to be here. And uh, I remember listening to you back in the day, and I'm great to see that you're still doing good work. Well, thanks. Thank you. I'm always uh, grateful that anybody is, you know, remembers the, the program and you remember from way back and are courageous enough to admit that they're that old. <laughs> anyway, Barry, th thanks for joining us. So yeah, there things have changed. Uh, I like to say, and I've said it many times, that all stories of substance abuse and treatment are the same, except they're different. And, and the differences are getting, are getting um, at least in terms of treatment, are getting more pronounced. Tell us about, in, in a kind of thumbnail and sketchy way, uh, what you've seen in terms of changes over the four decades you, you've been in this field. Sure, sure. So I can, I'll can i share a little bit about my experience from the beginning and, and what got me to this point, because it reflects the change and uh, it really is a paradigm shift in how, uh, it's, it's another way of looking at how to work with substance users and their families. So I was a, a psychologist working with um, individuals and families in a traditional, when I say traditional, it's one size fits all, treatment approach. And in 2011, I was feeling pretty burnt out looking towards like down the road, what my career was going to look like as a, as a provider, as a, you know, working in the addiction field. And a couple of things happened. One thing, um, one thing that was happening was that I was feeling not very successful in working with my clients. They were dying from overdose. I felt like I didn't have a lot of answers. Um, and um, it was it was very painful to continue doing this work. And in my family, uh, in a personal note, uh, my nephew was struggling with substance use 
and mental health issues that my family turned to me and using the traditional model of, of looking at the substance use as an issue and requiring that he do rehab and, and creating boundaries and doing tough love. And I realized that uh, it became a disaster. My, my, my nephew has done really well since then. He's got uh, 15 or 16 years in, in the recovery community. But what I became aware of was that the model was not working. The model that I was trained in and that majority of people were using, and they're still using to some extent. So what I began to do is I began to look outside of the traditional models and found that there are other approaches that people are using in, in substance use. And I began to look at the wider uh, the context of, of, of substance use in our country and in the world in terms of drug policy and understanding that in 2011, it was the um, it was the 40th anniversary of the war on drugs, and uh, and uh, I wasn't aware of that concept before. And when I began to educate myself, I realized that the war on drugs is it's a war on people and it's a war on families. And the focus is on not um, it's a it's like a socio political issue of not looking at the substance use and providing treatment for people, but looking at ways um, the idea that that substances were bad and were problematic, and the prohibition model became something that would, would, was oppressing people and uh, discriminating against people. Uh, and in terms of the, the treatment world, the idea that you have to stop using drugs or else you can't get well. You know, I was working with a lot of adolescents and young adults, and to tell a kid when they're 15, 17, tell parents that they are addicted and they have to stop using drugs for the rest of their life, it's, it wasn't really very realistic. So I, I realized I needed to make a, a change to incorporate some other ways of, of working with people to engage people in, in the treatment. Let me stop you right there and uh, before we go any further into where that discovery or that uh, insight takes you and go back to this notion of the traditional model. Am I right in assuming that, again, in a nutshell, the traditional model was based upon the bedrock belief that abstinence was the only way? Well, yes, but I think it's like, it's like a one-size-fits-all. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it was substance-centric as opposed to person-centric or family-centric. So I was trained, everyone who's trained in a professional way as a psychologist, social worker, counselor, there's a humanistic psychology, Carl Rogers, you know, non-judgment of clients, uh, focusing on the person. People are doctors and lawyers and pastors and students and um, athletes and members of the community and um, siblings and grandparents and somewhere in the picture may have issues with substance use. So rather than focusing just on the substance use, it's how I was trained and how we're all trained. Right, right. The narrative of the substance comes first and that became prominent and we lost track of the human being in in the picture yes. trying to get some you, help. The loss of the individual is a characteristic of any process that becomes a militaristic in nature. In other words, if you declare war on something, you're saying there is a bigger goal than just the individual. <laughs> you know, there's collateral damage. If we're at war, unfortunately, some people are going to be hurt that shouldn't be. You mentioned the break point of, you know, the 40th anniversary of the war on drugs. Before anything therapeutically could change, as a society, we had to get it out of our heads that this was a criminal justice problem and shift over into this is a medical problem. This is a public health issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, was that the biggest change that's occurred in the past uh, 40 years, 30 years? We're moving in that direction, certainly. So 
the laws have changed in terms of um, providing naloxone for people, easy access to naloxone for people who need it. Um, it's, it's now it's over the counter in many states and many communities. Um, there's uh, laws that will require that, that won't arrest you uh, if you if you're witnessed an overdose and you're calling the you know, mm-hmm. you're calling the police. Um, there's um, in New York City. There's the first safe consumption site, which is which allows people to come in and use drugs in a setting where they are going to be provide medical attention or food or be able to connect them with housing or any other resources right. that they might need. So that's a public health approach that reflects the model of engaging people where they're at right. um, and having them more inviting them into a therapy process or inviting them into a, a, a process of getting well. And the traditional model of, you know, it's like you have to do it this way. It's very prescriptive. It's like authoritarian or paternalistic. Going to therapy is not, it's a very difficult thing to do. It takes a lot of courage. So you want to make it inviting. You want to make, you want to meet people where they're at and inviting them in. So that trend is happening. Let me ask you about the other thing that uh, I think has uh, shaped your uh, your paradigm shift, and that is this notion of harm reduction. What does harm reduction mean to you? So harm reduction, it's a philosophy that acknowledges the rights and uniqueness of um, each person and empowers people, uh, empowers me to work with people in a collaborative way so they can begin to make some lifestyle and behavior changes. It's based on the knowledge that all human beings will engage in behaviors that carry risks and they have a right to make choices. And harm reduction shifts the focus from attempting to restrict or prohibit behaviors to reducing the negative consequences of behaviors. Uh, it's the foundation of a lot of public health policies because it places the self-empowerment of the person at the center. Wasn't harm reduction, though, the point of any kind of treatment from, you know, even the dark ages of treatment to today, where it's a more humanistic notion. But it was always about reducing harm, right? Well, we wear sunscreen, we use helmets, we use seatbelts, um, condoms. This is stuff that's incorporated into our lifestyle. But in substance use, there's this sense of we kind of forget about that. And we look at it has to be this way because it's moving away from the individual. Let's talk about some of the uh, types of disorders that you deal with and how your treatment has changed regarding each of those. You deal with all sorts of substance abuse issues, alcohol, drugs. You know, addictions are not always substances. So they're, they're what's called process addiction. So yes. gambling, um, overeating, sex. You deal with those as well. At this point, my practice is mostly substances. But yeah. the, the process of engaging people in treatment is similar. The process of the, the therapies that are offered are there's a lot of overlap and there's more standard. Um, if you, again, focus on each person coming in, a, a lot of people will come in and they, they may have addictions to multiple substances or they may have, they may be overeating in a, in a dangerous way or there might be some gambling issues. It's, things usually aren't in a vacuum. There's often overlap. Yeah. So it's, it's focusing on what's the situation with that person and look for ways to um, you know, provide the, the proper treatment or approach to help them. I guess what my question trying to ask is when someone comes in for uh, treatment with you for whatever the issue may be, mm-hmm. or how quickly do you arrive at the notion of, well, I can't just tell them they've got to stop. I can't just begin with this abstinence thing. Or do you never approach it that way? Do, do you know what I mean? If it's person-centric and or family-centric, 
and wanting to engage some people into treatment. People were going to come and they're going to say, this is what I need to work on. This is what my concerns are. And it's understanding that people have a relationship with substances and a relationship is uh, you know, there's a history, like a relationship with a person. There's uh, there's a history to it. There's benefits and there's negatives or downsides to it. And people don't necessarily see substance use as an issue. But if you talk about it in terms of, of, a, of a relationship with it, they'll, they'll be able to point to what the consequences are. Or there's benefits to using substances. So being able to talk about it in those terms, it's less threatening. And people can link it to other behaviors that, that they're concerned about. So I work with kids. They're not going to come in and say, I have a problem with substance use. They're going to say, um, I can't sleep at night. I'm being bullied. I, I'm having pressure from, um, you know, academics. Um, I, I feel like I may have, I may be gay. It's like the right, issues right, right. that they're struggling with. And they're more willing to deal with that than what the substance use is. So let's get on board with that. Let's talk about that. Tell me more about that. And it's what do they want to work on? What do people want help with? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And engaging a trust. It's like they're, they're not going to trust the process. Um They'll trust the process more if if they're you know if I'm you know, I'm I'm, meet, you know, I'm meeting where they're at and I'm I'm working with them on what they want to work on. Right. If the process looks like it's in the service of dealing with what they say is troubling them, then it's something they're more likely to go along with rather than this is about getting you to stop smoking so much marijuana. I guess that can sound like the cart before the horse for some people, right? Yeah, and one of the things I learned, and one of the things that is that we know now about how people change, is that there's something called the stages of change. And there's research done over the last 30 years about how people across different conditions, medical conditions and, and, and substance use, it's really about behavioral lifestyle change. Um, they go through periods of change from what we typically call denial to being more aware of the problem. It's called contemplation. You're not really ready to change. And there's... Um, preparation where you're beginning to think about ways to change. Yes, I have, I, I need to do something. I'm not sure what to do. And then putting it into action. You can't force that process. You come in and you um, encourage them to begin to work on the things that they could work on, to increase their motivation, to be able to change the things that they are wanting to change and giving them some confidence and feeling like empowered to be able to make some small positive steps and that moves them along that continuum of wanting to change. Does your client base, uh, is it made up primarily of parents calling you for uh, help? So about 50% of my practice are families. um, And the families are either the parents themselves who have a loved one or a child who is using, or the family, sometimes often the, um, about half of those people, about a quarter, I have families with the loved one or or kid is working with the family. And then the other 50%, are people that are just individuals that are uh, coming in on their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the age group of uh, young people that you you uh, you see? The middle school, like 14 on up. When kids start having issues with, I, I work with a lot of kids with ADD or with uh, some academic issues or some kids who their parents are discovering they're on the spectrum and there may be substance use, there may not be substance use, but it's looking at the larger issue and sometimes it's a more prominent issue. So a lot of times kids coming in 14, 15, they're beginning to experiment with substances, you know, putting the parents at ease to know that, you know, there's things that they can do once they get an understanding of what's the deal with their kid and, and what's really can... what's going on. Yeah. I'm certain that every generation has looked every generation of adults has looked at the circumstances around their children or grandchildren and uh, thought, gee, it's tough to be a kid. It's hard to escape the notion that there's never been a more difficult moment than right now to be a young person. Do you agree with that? 
So I'm biased because I'm not a young person. And I always think that, you know, you always hear that every generation complains about the younger generation, or it's like this generation is worse. I think coming out of the pandemic, which was a, you know, obviously a a once in a hundred year century thing. And then the the political climate of what's going on, where Mm -hmm. there's just Mm -hmm. a lot of uncertainty. Yeah, I I think it is much harder for for kids now than it was before. There's just the challenges are are different. Well, it's always struck me that... uh a major distinction is the 24 hour, seven day a week, nonstop need to be a kid and to be competing with your peer group and making sure you fit. When you and I were young, there were those same pressures, but they were like a nine to five job. When you got home, you could be yourself, but these kids do not have any respite from, from this uh, intense pressure to fit in. How has that environment impacted young people in conjunction with the legalization of marijuana? So one of the things that uh, that has helped me with the paradigm shift is to acknowledge that good parenting hasn't changed in, in 40 years. The, the, the principles of, of being able to maintain a connection with your kid and be loving and being able to take care of yourself so you can be more effective and establish some values and principles that will help your kid and your family move through normal developmental process in, in as healthy as way as possible, getting back to those roots. So, you know, being able to do that, regardless of whatever the challenges are, it's empowering the family, it's empowering the parents. So whatever way, so I thought it's important to be able to work with the family because if the, if the parents are feeling less anxious, if the parents are feeling more confident, um, they're gonna be able to parent the kid better. Mm-hmm. In some ways, it's, you know, it's a complicated problem, but I look at it as this very basic things. It's like helping parents feel more confident as being parents. In that context, are you saying that now that marijuana is not only uh, legal in many, many places, but it's legal for recreational purposes, shouldn't have an impact on parenting? And uh... so um, about four or five years ago, I still got calls from parents who were very like freaked out, very anxious, upset because their kids are smoking pot and, and maybe they're doing something else. So there's been a shift with medical cannabis being legal in Pennsylvania starting in 2019 when it was more available. The idea that the narrative of the war on drugs, that drugs are bad, has shifted, recognizing that you know, a majority of the people in our country acknowledge that, that cannabis should be legalized in some form. So looking at, it, at cannabis as medicine, and when I work parents, I'm helping them to talk to their kids so they can begin to tell them why are they smoking pot? You know, why are they using drugs? And you know, a lot of them will say, I'm feeling anxious, I'm having trouble sleeping, I'm feeling depressed. Some of those conditions, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, are qualifying opioid use disorders, qualifying conditions to be a medical cannabis patient. So this the shift has been from cannabis as a dangerous, scary drug, and oh my God, what do I do? to actually looking at his medicine and getting more comfortable with that uh, concept. And, and you know, what do you take medicine for? You, take, you, you go to a doctor to get medicine, you get medicine for depression, you get medicine for anxiety. So, so it's been easier for parents to see that and to be, be more uh, able to help their kid and yeah. kids more engaged. At least, at least open to the idea. I mean, there was a time when marijuana was classified by the government, still is at some level, in the same category as heroin. I mean, it's crazy. And I would tell people who say, you know, you can't treat opioid disorder 
by telling people to smoke marijuana. I said, if you asked 10 sets of parents whether they would rather have their children using opioids or marijuana, what do you think they'll say? They'll say marijuana. So I, I hear you about the, the lessening the impact of the evil of marijuana and thinking of it more as a medicine is making sense. But you deal with kids that, as you say, are medicating themselves with, with marijuana. And tell me if I'm wrong here. The abstinence model is a declaration to somebody coming to a person like you and saying, my kid's using drugs. The abstinence model says to them, well, unfortunately, that's going to be the case for the rest of his life. He's going to be addicted to a substance the rest of his life, and you just have to manage that. Parents reject that. They just recoil from that. You're branding my child as a lifelong cripple. Uh, has that changed in, you, in, in your mind in treatment? Can you tell parents, look, we can get it to a manageable point. It's not all or nothing. In other conditions besides substance use, if you look at people with diabetes, people with asthma, people who have cardiac problems, when you go to the doctor, the doctor is going to say, let's look at your individual health, at your history, at your motivation, and let's develop a treatment plan based on that. What do you need to do? They're not going to say, you need to get a, uh, I need to you get a triple bypass and let's schedule that for you. They're going to start with some, with diet and exercise and then medicine. So in the substance use world, we, it's un, for, unfortunately, the, the one-size-fits-all model, it's like, let's start with something that, you know, it's like focusing on the substances and say, we're not exploring the reasons and giving tools and strategies to be able to, to manage that better. And, and I wanted to say, so there's a lot of infighting among treatment providers when they look at it as a dichotomy, like abstinence or not abstinence. And some kids cannot use, some people cannot use, and some people can't use for the rest of their life, but you don't start there. Yeah, um, You start with where they're at, try to make it as safe as possible. You educate them and give them some tools to manage the reasons for why they're using substances. And if they want to start with moderation, you know, something with kids, sometimes it's obviously it's not healthy. I don't recommend any kid to use cannabis. It's a developing mind. It's not something that, but that I would, that I'm going to recommend, but they're going to do it. So if they're going to do it, let's look at, you know, making it as safe as possible or, or yeah. reducing the harm. Or I mean, I have, so, you know, our generation has some experience with recreational use of marijuana. And I, I tell people, I'm, I mean, I'm sometimes taken aback by the swiftness with which it's changed and the money that's driving a lot of decisions about marijuana. And I, I am convinced, uh, I hope you agree, that nobody should go to jail for 10 years over a substance like marijuana. On the other hand, no one can expect to learn algebra if you're stoned going into the algebra class at 13, unless you're sort of inclined mathematically. It, you know, marijuana takes you someplace else. I'm heartened to hear that, that you're not recommending to people that they don't worry about marijuana. It's got to be handled. Right. So there's myths and stigma associated with yes, no. drugs. So there are kids that I work with and there are adults that I work with who you know, everybody's different. Sometimes when you smoke and you become so impaired, you're not able to function. But there's kids that I work with and there's adults that I work with who will use at a level where they are able to be more productive. And everyone, and, and cannabis is a, is, a, is a medicine, it's a substance that is very unique to each person because we have, there's an endocannabinoid system. There's a part of our body that produces the similar yep. chemicals mm -hmm. that are similar to the plant medicine. So everybody is different. Our guest is uh, Barry Lessing. He is a uh, licensed psychologist and a certified uh, 
addiction uh, counselor. By the way, that's a unique combination. I would recommend that people looking for help get to somebody with those kind of dual credentials because they are, um, it's two different disciplines. Uh, Barry, a couple of other things. You formed a nonprofit. Are you still active with that nonprofit family? No, I, no. So I, back in 2011, when I became aware of the public health issue, I got involved in a nonprofit work, working with different nonprofits in trying to educate parents and families. Initially, when people have lost their loved ones to overdose use, uh, to create some uh, support for them and um, being able to empower them to become advocates themselves to, to help them change you know, the arc of the problem to make it less um, to make it less harmful. I stepped away from that from 2019, so I'm just working exclusively in my in my private practice. And finally, just I don't know whether you have an opinion upon this or not. It just popped into my mind talking about cannabis. We may be on the cusp of some real changes in terms of um, psychedelic psychiatry or mental health tools. Um, ketamine is always lumped into that. I know it's not, a, strictly speaking, a, a psychedelic, but it's sort of in there. I know that some of the other drugs, MDMA uh, is, is in clinical trials, and they've had some great success with that. Uh, do, you, do you think we're, we're, we're going to see a, um, a, a big change in terms of using things like psilocybin, mushrooms, even LSD therapeutically in the near future? Yeah. So like you said, MDMA is already in, in like advanced clinical trials. Psilocybin in, is beginning to be researched. MDMA in the next couple of years, and then psilocybin is going to probably be the next four or five years. Um, and again, so it, it's these are plants, these are this is these are plants that have been used as medicine in other cultures for thousands and thousands of years. So Talk about the change. There has been a lot of changes, and in some ways, it's um, the, the dominoes are slow to fall, but they're beginning to fall in a, in a better direction. Barry Lessing, thanks so much. Uh, we we will, uh, of course, on on our site uh, have have contact information for uh, Barry. Your practice is totally now tele, uh, telemedicine, right? And and, right. and you're, you and your you and your client base are comfortable with being able to do it this way remotely. So it's not for everybody. It, it for people who um, it's you know, for people who want and need to have be see somebody individually. I, I think there's you know, there's there's a value to that for sure. Um, but it provides um, you know, there's some advantages to it. So it provides. Uh, I, I work with kids and families. Some of them are in college. Some of them are are um, um, estranged from their family. So I can mm-hmm. actually have families together doing you know having separate Zoom links. Um, so it, it allows there's benefits and for me, it's a lot more benefits than, than, yeah, I think, I think, I think as general, as we get more, more, uh, comfortable with, with this stuff, it's going to become a, you know, a wholly different thing. People, some people probably prefer this. Thanks so much, Barry. Uh, appreciate your time and, uh, like to have you back on again, uh, anytime you like. Love to. Thanks a lot, Steve. Thank you all as well. Don't forget to uh, look for us wherever you find your podcasts, and they're all over the place. Last time I checked, there were four or five million podcasts. We're just one of them. (laughs) When you find us, please hit the uh, subscription button. We, We appreciate it. See you next time on The Behavioral Corner. Retreat Behavioral Health has proudly been serving the community for over 10 years. Here at Retreat, we believe in the power of connection and quality care. We offer comprehensive, holistic, and compassionate treatment from industry-leading experts. Call 855-802-6600 
or visit us at www.retreatbehavioralhealth.com to begin your journey today. That's it for now. And make us a habit, hanging out at the Behavioral Corner. And when we're not hanging, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter on the Behavioral Corner.